We are reading in Matthew 16, 5 through 15. Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves, the basket of leftovers you picked up, or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves, and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again, I say, beware of this yeast of the, fa the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast in bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he again asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then again he asked them, but who do you say I am? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ruby. You guys have a seat. There are times in life, um, and you've maybe experienced some of these times yourself, uh, that we maybe call a moment of truth. Moment of truth, right? A, a moment in life where you have a decision to make um, between one thing or another thing, a decision to go for the thing that you're maybe thinking about going for, or the decision to, to hold back, the decision to take a risk, or the decision to play it safe, the decision to take a step forward or just remain where you are. Um, there's, there's all sorts of ways that this, this, these moments of truth kind of happen to us in life. Um, when you get married, that's a big one, right? Like getting married, that's a big decision. Like, do you want to take that step? Do you want to move forward with this or do I not? To, to have children or to take a new job or to move to a new place or what school to pick or uh, whatever. When, right after my wife and I got married, um, when we got married on our wedding day, she gave me a gift. She gave me hang gliding, which is awesome because she's an awesome wife. Um, she gave me hang gliding, like a, a voucher to go hang gliding in Tennessee, uh, which was super cool. So um, in a couple months later after our wedding in October, I think it was, we went up to the mountains in Tennessee and um, go to, it's near Lookout Mountain somewhere up there. And uh, yeah, there's this guy up there. His name is Clark, and he's a hang gliding instructor. And this is, it's a fascinating, anybody in here ever been hang gliding? Has anybody done that other than me? Okay, cool. I don't think anybody there. That's, it's, it's a very unique experience. Um, you kind of get up on this mountain. It's like, it's like a surfer culture. You kind of get up there. There's all these just dudes sitting on top of this mountain, literally just hanging out and um, waiting for what they call thermals, which is basically their waves, right? And they're waiting for thermals to push up from the ground up the side of the mountain so they can just run and jump off the mountain. Like that's what they do all day long. And then they ride thermals pushing up from the, you know, the air and uh, just hang glide around. So we go up there and he kind of walks us through what that's going to look like. And we get, you know, you kind of have your little tandem set up where you, I would go with Clark, right? And then Tara, my wife, she went with him afterwards. But uh, man, it's just this incredible moment where after he kind of walks you through everything and you're just standing there and there's this like platform, literally it's a cliff, right? You're on a cliff face and it's just the mountain ends right here, you know, and there's this platform that just sort of like curls over the mountain. And uh, he says, he's like, all right, so when we get there, like, I I'm going to tell you when to go. We're waiting for the right moment, the right opportunity. He can kind of tell the way the wind's blowing or whatever. And he's like, we're going to get there. And I'm going to say, run. And he's like, when I say run, 
you can't not run. Like you have to run because if I start running, he's talking to me. He's like, if I start running and you don't run, I'm like dragging you off and you're gonna, we're gonna hurt ourselves. He's like, when I say run, you gotta run. And so that's the moment of truth, right? You get to this, like literally you're just staring like into nothing but trees and ground like a thousand feet down. And he just, he's like, all right, you ready? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. You know, <laughs> he's like, run. And, and, and we did, and we just, we took off and ran. It was amazing. Like you just jump off a cliff and you, you you do the thing. And man, we were flying with this like red tail hawk for like 20 minutes. We were just floating up in the air. Super neat. Um, an amazing experience. But sometimes in life, right, we get those moments of truth. And uh, I think for Peter and the disciples, Matthew 16 right here, this is a moment of truth. This is the moment of truth um, for them and for Peter in this moment. Um, this is an amazing moment. We're in this series called Questions Jesus Asked. We actually did this series last year, um, but we, we only had like five or six last year that Jesus asked some, some different questions that we walked through. And Jesus asks over 300 questions in the gospels. So you're like, man, I just felt like we'd be remiss to not come back to this and look at some more questions that Jesus asked as he, as he travels and, and goes throughout his ministry. And today um, we're really gonna look at what I would say is the most important question that Jesus ever asked anyone. Who do you say that I am? That's what he asked. The moment of truth, who do you say that I am? So for a little bit of context, Ruby read kind of the first part of chapter 16 there in Matthew. If you don't have, uh, if you're not there yet, Matthew 16, that's where we're at. Um, Jesus and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? They kind of go back and forth a good bit. They, Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're sort of the higher ups in the Jewish religious culture. And they don't really agree with Jesus. They don't like Jesus that much. They're always trying to trick Jesus. They're messing with Jesus. They'll ask him to, you know, kind of trying to walk him into traps at time or whatever. And they're the ones who end up getting him uh, killed in the end. And um, they've just recently at the beginning of the chapter, they ask him for a sign, right? They ask him to basically the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they want Jesus to perform for them, to do things for them, to be sort of their puppet. And then they will decide if he really is who he says he is and all that kind of thing. And Jesus just tells them, I I'm not, I'm not your puppet. I'm not your showboy. I'm not your jester. Like I'm not doing these things. I've been doing miracles. Jesus is two, two and a half years into his ministry at this point. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's walked on water. He's changed water into wine. He's taught amazing things and he's amassed a huge following by doing so many, he's literally raised people back to life and yet they're asking him for a sign. It, like you see the foolishness of this, right? That the Pharisees are like, okay, we'll do something and maybe we'll believe in you. He's like, I've done everything and you're asking me for a sign. He's like, man, you, can't, you guys can't even tell the signs of the time. You can't tell like if it's gonna rain in the morning or in the evening, like if you know certain signs, but you're looking at me and you're gonna ask me for a sign to see if I'm the Messiah. And he just tells them, I'm not doing it. And then he tells his disciples um, what Ruby read, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just talking about the way that they teach as, as hypocritical people, people who um, they know what the word of God says and yet they refuse to see Jesus for who he is. See, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who like define and typify what Jesus said in John 3.19. In John 3.19, Jesus said that light has come into the world, but he says, here's the verdict. Men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And what he means by that is you don't see me, Jesus talking, you don't see me for who I am. You know why? Because you love your sin. That's why. Pharisees, it's not because you haven't seen a sign. It's not because I haven't done enough to prove that I am the Messiah, that I am the one that the scripture said I would be. That's not the reason you don't believe in me. You don't believe in me because you love sin. 
Like that's the point to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? And listen, here's, that's the truth for all of us. And if there's anybody in this room right now, who I, I'm just going to talk straight with you for just a second. If you up to this point in your life have rejected who Jesus is, there's all sorts of ways and excuses and reasons you can give for that. Oh, well, it doesn't make sense. Or, oh, well, I just haven't seen enough evidence. Or, oh, uh, you know, Christians did this and I've experienced that. Or what? Listen, and I understand you might have some what you consider to be legitimate excuses, but the reality is, according to Jesus, John three nineteen, the reason you reject him is because you love your sin more. It's that. It's, it's really that simple. And we know that if we reckon with Jesus, we have to reckon with our sin because that's what he's going to do. And that's what he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he gets his disciples together and he walks them into the region of Caesarea Philippi. So I'm going to read, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So people have been talking about who Jesus is, right? And, and they've heard lots of different things. Um, people are kind of spreading rumors. You know, sometimes when, I don't know if y'all know this or if y'all have ever done this yourselves, but sometimes when people don't know the right answer, they'll make one up. Do you guys know that? I don't know. I know y'all have never done that. Um, but sometimes people just, when they don't actually know the truth, they say their own version of what they think is the truth or their best guess right? That's a word we call gossip, right? That's what that is, just making something up out of, out of your best imagination of what, like, and, and to their credit, right, the Jews had the Old Testament scriptures. They knew some things about Jesus and the Messiah or like what that, what would be going on around that time. They knew Elijah would come before him and all that, but they kind of missed John the Baptist because he was in the spirit of Elijah and they, they knew that the Messiah would be this like prophet type person. So maybe he's Jeremiah. So they had some guesses, but man, Jesus is just like, you know, listen, I, I know people have their own opinions of who I am. And this still happens today, doesn't it? And people have their opinions of who Jesus is. You can talk to a hundred different people in this world today. And even in America, uh, kind of our post-Christian, post-modern uh, uh, culture that we're living in now, where people just have all sorts of ideas of who they think Jesus is or who they want Jesus to be. And that might really be the key phrase, who they kind of want subjectively based on their own opinions or their own feelings, who they want Jesus to be. Like you ask any different person, you might get a Republican Jesus or a Democrat Jesus. You'll get different kinds. You'll get Jesus that loves the Georgia Bulldogs and the Alabama Crimson Tide. You got different Jesuses all over the place. You get Jesus who follows your ideologies of the world and the way you think about the world so that he kind of makes you feel good about you and the things that you're doing and the way that you're living your life. That's, that's so many different people's version of Jesus. The reality is a lot of people, man, they want Jesus. They want his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his kindness and his goodness and all those things without, please hold the conviction of sin and the holiness and the justice and the righteousness and the call on my life to follow after him. Like I want the, I want the stuff that makes me feel good, but don't require anything of me, Jesus, right? Y'all, that's not Jesus. That's a genie. That's Santa Claus. That's a microwave. This is my Jesus. Beep, boop, boop, bam. 30 seconds, thank you. See you later, right? Like that's, that's funny, but it's not, right? Yeah, like this is people's Jesus out of their own making. Listen, 
Jesus, we don't get to make Jesus out of our own choosing and our own opinions. Jesus is who he is. Quite regardless of who we say he is, he is who he is. He just simply is. He's Jesus. So he asked the disciples, you know, who, who do people say that I am? And they kind of hear the different opinions that, you know, folks have about him. And then verse 15, but what about you? He asked, here's, here's our question today. Who do you say that I am? You can almost hear the anticipation, right, in Jesus's question here. As far as we know, it's the only time that Jesus asks this question to his disciples or to anyone. Um, Jesus has revealed his Messiahship, like to the woman at the well, John chapter 4, um, and a couple other people have confessed Jesus to be the Son of God up to this point. In John chapter 1, actually two different people, John the Baptist and Nathaniel, his disciple, they both confess this, um, that they believe that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God which is cool, but Jesus has never really asked people. He's never really asked his disciples point blank, right here, moment of truth. Who do you say that I am? See, others have gotten him wrong up until this point. A lot of people had gotten him wrong. His neighbors just called him the carpenter's son. If y'all know that story, Nazarene, like what good can come out of Nazareth, right? His brothers thought he was crazy. Some called him rabbi, some called him a prophet. The smart and religious teachers, they called him a devil and a heretic. People were calling him all sorts of different things. And this is the moment, right? The moment of truth. And Jesus just looks right at him and says, listen, I'm not asking you what they say right now. I'm asking you who you say I am. What do you believe about me? I say this is the most important question that Jesus asked, and I believe that it is for them and for us, because this, this question really spans 2,000 years all the way to us now today, because it matters how we answer this question, who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe about him personally? I'm not asking you what your grandmother believed. I'm not asking you what your spouse believes. I'm not asking you what your mom and your dad believe. I'm not asking you to believe what I believe. I'm asking you what you believe about Jesus. Who is he? And so Peter answers, kind of in typical Peter fashion, right? He's the one for the disciples who most often speaks up. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, son of the living God. When he says that word Christ, I, again, moment of truth. And this is such a, a big confession. I think we can hear that sometimes. This is a story you've probably heard before, uh, a verse that you've read a lot of times before, the confession of Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what people say when we baptize them here at church. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? And they say, yes, I believe that. But that word Christ, I think it's so packed full of meaning. It's the anointed one, right? It's Messiah in Hebrew. It's the word Messiah in Greek. It's Christos Christ, right? It just comes with the idea of the, the meaning of one who is anointed. And actually in the Old Testament, there were several people who were called anointed, given that title of Messiah in some way, kind of little M messiahs, like over the centuries. And usually it was people that were anointed by God to fulfill some specific role. It was a king or it was a priest or it was a prophet. One of those three roles in Israel's history, they were known as the anointed ones, the kind of little messiahs throughout the history of the Jews. And yet they knew that one was coming. Somebody else was going to come who was going to be the Messiah, not a Messiah, not an anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so when Peter says you are the Christ, 
That is a deep and real statement and a bold thing to say in the presence of witnesses. You're the Christ. Priest, prophet, king. Those were the ones anointed as messiahs in the Old Testament. And Jesus is all three. Priests, the one who intercedes between God and man. Prophet, the one who speaks the very word of God. King, the one who leads the people of God. Jesus, all three wrapped into one. The Christ, not a Christ, the Christ. And he says, you're the son of the living God, the almighty himself. You, Jesus, are the son of God. And that, that term, that, that terminology, that word is son of God is really used throughout the, the New Testament to describe Jesus as well. The apostle John really in his gospel and in his letters, he kind of brings this out more than anybody else about Jesus being the, the only begotten beloved son of God. We even hear God himself when Jesus is baptized, says the heavens open up and John the Baptist hears the voice of God as a dove descends upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit um, descends upon Jesus and he hears the father speak, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And actually just after this story, some of the disciples get to go up with Jesus, Peter, James, and John on top of the mountain that's right behind Caesarea Philippi. And they get to see Jesus transfigured. And again, they hear a voice, this is my son. And God says, listen to him. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says this, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome. It's a little bit of a word play going on with Jesus here. Um, he had already named Peter, Peter. His name was Simon, but Jesus had already called him Peter. John chapter 1, we actually see um, Jesus call Peter for the first time, and he names him Cephas in Aramaic, or Petros in Greek, which means rock or little stone, right? It's kind of what Peter means. And so when Peter confesses this, he says, Peter, you are Peter, little stone, right? And on this rock, and I don't think he's talking about the rock of Peter. He's just talking about the rock of the confession of the truth that you just said, the gospel message that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet there's more to the story than even just that, because we need to understand where Jesus is. When he asked this question and when the disciples make their confession, it said he had taken them to the region of Caesarea Philippi. I brought some pictures with me today. So this, um, this first picture, this is the city of Caesarea Philippi. And you can actually see back there, there's a rock face. It was the largest rock face in all of Israel. This was kind of the ancient city in the first century, known as Benias or uh, Caesarea Philippi. And um, the Jews knew this place well, and it's kind of an interesting thing that Jesus would take them there according to extra biblical Jewish history, including like first Enoch, if you kind of have ever heard of these kind of things, something kind of outside the Bible, but this is where the Jews believed that it was on Mount Hermon. It was the mountain right behind. So that's the mountain up there behind uh, Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon or um, Mount, um, what, what was the name in the Old Testament? I forget the name in the Old Testament, but um, Mount Hermon in the New Testament is what it's called. But it was on this mountain that the sons of God or fallen angels descended to the earth 
right? It was that mountain. And in Genesis chapter six, we actually see this kind of interesting phrase in, in six, one through four, where it says that the sons of God, these, these fallen angels had come to the earth and then they started having children with human women and they created this race of giants, right? Sort of this interesting, the Nephilim and like all these kind of different giants that we see throughout Old Testament history. In the Jews' minds, it started here. It started at Caesarea Philippi. It started on Mount Hermon. And it was believed that um, these giants and the race that came from them, the Nephilim, um, kind of, you know, created the clans called the Rephaim and the Anakim, who would later inhabit the promised land. And when God sent his people into the promised land, what did they find? They found a race of giants. They found these huge individuals and it scared them and it kind of freaked them out. But God sent them into the promised land to take over the promised land because that was their land. And they just wiped out all these clans and all these different uh, people from the land that God had given to them. And actually right before they enter into the promised land, Moses, if you read Deuteronomy chapter three, you'll see Moses uh, lead the Israelites in battle against the king named Og, O-G. And that's an interesting name, right? Og. Um, he was a giant giant king. He was a giant king. And Moses goes into battle on this mountain against Og right before they enter into the promised land. Actually, Caesarea Philippi was just on the other side of the Jordan River. Okay. So before you really enter into the proper promised land across the Jordan, you would have to go to this mountain. So Moses goes there. They defeat the giant Og. Um, they take him out and then they, they end up going into the promised land, even though Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land with them. And even though Israel defeated Og out Mount Hermon, the prevalence of idol worship and sacrificing to foreign gods remained at this location for centuries. We go to that next picture. So if you were to go there in the first century, they would look something like this. There were temples to Zeus and temples to Augustus, and it was called the Sanctuary of Pan, right? And Pan was actually a god of fright, a god of panic. He was a half goat, half man god, a false god that um, these people in the first century would go here and they would worship at this rock face. And throughout the centuries, even the Jews, after the split of the kingdom, uh, after Solomon's death, um, Jeroboam set up a cult center here. Like Jeroboam, the king of Israel, even God's own people would go to this rock face and worship idols, worship fallen angels, worship demons, and worship dead kings of the past. They would go here and they would set up temples. They would set up cult centers. They would set up idols. They would practice rituals, even child sacrifice right here on this rock face. And over the centuries, this just became known as a place of fear, a place of darkness, a place of death. And after the Assyrians came and they took over uh, the northern um, the northern capital of Israel and they kind of destroyed all this stuff over the next several centuries as the Hellenistic period came in with Alexander the Great and all that. They really, they, they kind of brought it back here. And this is what they created. They created these temples and they created the worship of Pan right here at this sanctuary. It's like, this was an area that just for whatever reason seemed to kind of draw people back to the worship of everything but God. It was a dark place and a weird place and a scary place. And the Jews in their history kind of looked at Caesarea Philippi as a, as a place that was just, for, for, for whatever reason, just evil and dark. A place of fear, a place of fright. And actually, by the first century, the worship that would happen here, like I said, oftentimes it was even child sacrifice. They would sacrifice to Pan or they would sacrifice to Zeus or whoever they would sacrifice to. 
and most often they would throw the sacrifices into a cave. You can kind of see it there, but this next picture, they would throw, this is modern day, they would throw the sacrifices into this cave that they called the gates of Hades. They believed that that right there was the opening, the entrance to the underworld. Um, and, and when Jesus says Hades here, he's not, it's not hell. Um, some people think he's talking about, he's not talking about hell. He's talking about death. Hades is death. Hades is the entrance to death. Like that cave to the Jewish people and to the people of that area, they understood, at least if they believe this or not, I don't know, but most of them who did believe this, they believed that that right there was the mouth of death, the gates of Hades itself. And so when Jesus asks them that question, that's where they are. Who do you say that I am? Why did he go here, right? Why did Jesus take his disciples to Caesarea Philippi? To ask, he didn't have to go there, but that's where he went to ask them that question, the most important question he could ask them. Why? If we'll go back to that, that, that middle picture, please. It's because it would have looked something like this. And as Jesus was standing there, I think the reason he goes to Caesarea Philippi is to simply say to them and let them know, listen, who do you say that I am? Because it's either me or it's them. It's either you worship me and you see me and you trust me and you follow me and you give me everything in your life or you worship that there is no middle ground. Jesus himself has already taught this. There's only two roads that you can take. There's the broad road that leads to destruction. And then there's the narrow road that leads to life. And that is me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And if you're going to come to me, you come to me. You don't come to me and to this. You come to me alone and you worship me alone. Who am I to you? The, the Pharisees made big claims and they knew the scriptures and yet still their hearts were here. Their hearts were idolatrous. Their hearts were sinful because they wouldn't let Jesus be to them who God had said he was. And yet now he's just asking his disciples, listen, look at this and answer my question. Who am I to you? Who do you say that I am it's either me or it's them. And maybe the other reason Jesus was there was because, again, that, that sanctuary of Pan. Pan was the God to, to those people in that region. He was the God of fright. He was the God of fear. He was actually a God that had died himself. And that's why I love that Peter says the son of the what? Living God. Pan was a God that had died and was now in the underworld, right? He was that God to them. So when they go to this place, it's fear and it's death. And when Jesus says that to Peter, Peter, this has been revealed to you by my father. The living God has revealed to you that I am the Christ and I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. To make the point that if you would listen to me, if you would come to me, if you would trust in me, Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, death will have nothing to say to you. Fear will have nothing to hold you back from ever again because I, Jesus, will change everything about who you are. I will set you free from both fear and death. And he tells Peter, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I want to read us Colossians chapter 2. That kind of gives us a picture of what Jesus accomplished for us 
at the cross. Because shortly after this, he, he, he brings his disciples here. They see that. If we'll go to that, that next picture again, which is the cave. He brings the disciples here and they see that. And he asks them the question, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Colossians chapter 2 the Apostle Paul, many years later, he explains what happened on the cross when Jesus died for our sins, right? And here's how he explains that. Verse 13, he says, when you were dead, listen again, death, death, right? When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. No more death, life in Christ Jesus, right? He made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Is it not true that the, that the thing in us that creates in us the fear of death is our sin, right? If that sanctuary was a sanctuary of fear and of death, what Jesus did on the cross was to take away every reason we have to be afraid, afraid of living or afraid of dying because he took away our sins. That's what he said. He canceled every one of them. The written code that was against us, the only thing that Satan could hang over our heads as guilty, 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 guilty of sin. They're all guilty of sin. It says Jesus took it away. And he nailed it on the cross. It's taken care of, done away with sin and death. Everything that the devil had at his disposal, Jesus dealt with on the cross. And then he says this. He says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. As much as the sanctuary of Pan on that rock face was a public spectacle, of fear and death, the cross of Jesus Christ made a public spectacle of fear and death, embarrassing them on the cross. That's our God. I want it to be known, Jesus did not come to play games. He didn't come to entertain us. He didn't come to give us self-help advice so that we could live our best life now. He didn't come to just boost our self-esteem. He didn't come to help us pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and live better lives right now. He came because there's a real battle raging in the cosmos from the beginning of all time. And it is a battle, a spiritual war for your soul. And it is a battlefield that he walked them up to when he walked them up to that cliff face to show them this is the battle. It's them or me. It's death and it's fear and it's idolatry and it's sin or it's me. This is the battle. And here you and I are this morning. And listen, this is all people at all time, we have this opportunity now because Jesus has done what he's done. Jesus has come and he's died on the cross. Jesus has risen again from the dead. Amen. And because that's true, here we are, able right now, this morning, to stare into the mouth of death itself, to stand on the cliff of our own sinfulness, stare into the mouth of death, and right there, as we look into that abyss, as we look into that darkness, as we look into that fear, as we look into death itself, to answer the question that Jesus asked all those years ago, who do you say that I am? 
And if you would answer by faith the way that Peter answered that question, then you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And death itself will be closed to you forever. That that mouth is shut, unable to swallow up anyone who has faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why Jesus took them there, to let them know, this is what I've defeated. This is what I'm going to the cross for. I will taste death for you so that you never have to. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question this morning. Many of us in this room, we, we know who Jesus is and we believe in Jesus. Uh, we do follow him as our Lord and our Savior, but I believe there's probably somebody in here right now and you have not made that confession. You've not put your trust and your hope in Jesus. Listen, we're gonna sing and we're gonna worship the name above all names this morning. And if you are a Christian, you're following Jesus, I just encourage you to stand and sing with all that you have. And when we walk out these doors, go live your life like he really is your Christ the son of the living God to you and that has changed you like it changed Peter and that you would go live that out. But if you don't know him yet, now is your opportunity to make that confession in the face of death itself because that mouth is still open to you. That abyss is still before you. You still stand on that rock ledge and I'm just saying, who is Jesus to you now? Who is he? You gotta answer that question. So I'll tell you this, this is who Jesus is who the apostles and who the prophets say that he is. As you look through scripture, they say he's the light of the world. They say he's the life of men. They say he's the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the promised son of Abraham, our high priest, our advocate, the lion of Judah, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, mighty God. And they say he's a man of sorrows. He's a suffering servant. He's the sacrificial lamb who was slain for our sins. But they also say he's our joy. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. He's our resting and our hiding place. He's the root and the vine. He's the gate and the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the cornerstone. He's the living water, the bread of life, the way, the truth, the life, the last Adam, the bridegroom, the morning star, creator, almighty, holy one of Israel, the author and perfecter of our faith, the amen, the faithful witness, the resurrection and the life, mighty God, word of God, image of God, form of God, fullness of God, glory of God, beloved son, of God. He's the redeemer, the deliverer, the captain of our salvation, the heir of all things, the head of the church, the name above every name, Lord, Savior, Messiah, Son of David, Son of Man. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who they say he is. Who do you say he is? I'm not asking you who they said. I'm asking you who you say he is. And I want to worship that name above all names this morning. I just want to invite you to stand and worship with us. If you want to come down for prayer, the prayer team will be down here. If you need prayer yourself, and listen, I'm going to stand over there by that door. And if you want to come talk to me and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk about that with you. Who do you say, who do you say that Jesus is?